good to be here with you this morning. I appreciate uh, always coming up here and getting to preach and to see uh, all of you and to get to know you better each time that I come. And uh, looking forward to uh, always coming back and studying God's Word with you. Genesis 1 and verse number 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you continue reading Genesis chapter 1, you can see that God made everything that is in the earth in six days, and on the sixth day of creation, He made the pinnacle of His creation, that is, mankind. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 27, it says, So God created man in His own image and in His own likeness. So what does that mean when God created man in His own image and in His own likeness? I think that He made us, number one, physical beings. You know, uh, we each have different physical characteristics that enable us, that, that set us apart from different people. You know, I have brown hair. You may have darker hair. You might have lighter hair. And that's a physical characteristic that makes you who you are. There are different physical characteristics that also we have. One physical characteristic that sets us apart from anybody is our fingerprints. You yourself has a unique fingerprint that make you very special. God made us when He created us in His own image. He created us to be intellectual beings. He made He gave us the idea of free will moral agency, meaning that God gives us the right to choose what we want to do in this in our life. He's given us the, 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 re, the ability to reason. He's given us the ability to think, to learn, to grow, to, to, do, to do and say the things that, that we want to do. And he, he wants us to do it according to His will, the Bible. Number three, God created us to be social beings. You know, we like to interact with one another. We like to communicate one with another. We like to talk one to another. You know, I think that that's just seen by social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, all the different social medias. And what do we do? We post those things to be social. And we like to get likes. We like all those things because we are social beings. I think that's one thing that we see in the life of Jesus, that He was a social creature. There in Luke chapter 2, there when He is lost, but He's in the temple and His mother comes in and He says, "What? what you know, I've been searching for you. And he says, don't you know I must be about my Father's business? And then after that, it says that Jesus began to grow in wisdom, that's intellectually. He began to go with, in favor with God, that's spiritually. And then it says, in favor with men, and that's socially. So one thing that we see Jesus beginning to do throughout His life is He grew socially. We need to be social creatures. That's how we're going to be able to preach the gospel, is by being social with people, by growing and connecting with one another. But also Jesus created us, or God created us to be spiritual beings. You know, we, 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 each one of within us have a soul. Paul prayed for our inner being, the soul, the spiritual state of mankind there in Ephesians chapter 3. He prayed that, that the inner man might be strengthened. And that's, that's exactly what we need to be praying for, that, that we might be a strong spiritual being in this life and that we can grow in our spirit. But fifthly in the one that we're going to spend the majority of our time on today is God created us to be a social being, a excuse me, a emotional being, an emotional being. You know, when we talk about emotions, we're talking about something that helps us and drives us to make decisions. You know, you you might become very angry at a situation. What happens? It leads you to 
do something else you might not want to do. You might say something because you become very angry at an individual or a situation or whatever it might be. You might become very angry and you might say something that you ought not say, but it's because of that anger that drove you to do something else that you ought not do. But, you know, other emotions drive us and helps us choose the right thing. Maybe we're in a very difficult stage of life and we, and we, we understand we got, might have to take another job opportunity. But our emotions drive us and we weigh out the options, we weigh out the benefits, the costs, the, the decisions that we're going to have to make and those emotions drive us to do things. And drives us and pushes us to do those things. This morning as we look at the emotions of man, I want us to look at three areas. Number one, I want us to look at the emotions of the Savior. What I want us to do in this first point is simply look at Jesus, look at our Savior Jesus Christ, and look at the emotions that He went under and how He handled those emotions because Jesus is our ultimate example and we should walk in His footsteps and therefore we need to handle emotions the way God, Jesus Himself, handled emotions. Number two, we're going to look at the emotions of the sword. People react differently because of the preaching of the gospel. And we're going to look at the emotions we might receive when we encounter people and talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we have a Bible study with them, the different emotions we might see because of this this word pricking their heart. And then thirdly, and if we have time, we're going to look at the emotions of separation. There's a great day coming. And that's the day of separation. That is the day of judgment. We're going to look at the different emotions that we can see according to the Bible that, that people might encounter because of that day of separation. So number one, let's look at the emotions of the Savior. One thing that we need to remember when we think about Jesus and we think about His emotions, we need to understand, yes, He is deity. He is God in the flesh. John 1 and 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You skip down to verse number 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what do we see? Yes, we understand that Jesus is deity, John 1 and verse 1, but he also became man and he in, in himself had manly characteristics. He was a physical being. He was an intellectual being. He was a social being. He was a spiritual being. And yes, he even had an emotional being within him. And we don't need to forget that because this is the thing that we're going to conclude with this point is Jesus understands our emotions. Jesus understands what it's like to be sad. Jesus understands what it's like to be angry. Jesus understands what it's like to be happy. And therefore, since He understands, He understands our emotions. So let's look at some different emotions that Jesus endured in this life. Go with me to Isaiah chapter number 53. Isaiah chapter number 53. This, of course, is the prophecy of the suffering servant, the suffering uh, Jesus prophesied many years before He went to Calvary's Hill. But this is the thing that I want you to notice about this prophecy. That He had emotions prophesied about Him before He stepped foot. Notice verse number 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Of course he was. He, people hated him for his teachings. People hated him for his doctrine. People looked at him as one that had authority because they saw him as teaching with one with authority. And guess what they did because of that? They rejected him. They said, we're not going to listen to this man. We're, we're going to try to crucify him. Beginning there in Matthew chapter 14. But look at this next one. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. Friends, Jesus understood sorrows. He understood grief. And that's our first point I want to look at. Jesus understands what it's like to be sad. You go to John chapter 11. There, the shortest verse in our English Bible. It just simply says what? Jesus 
wept. Now what's the context surrounding Jesus' wept? Of course he is weeping over his friend Lazarus. Here, here they call him to the graveside. He comes up and he says, where is he? Where is he lying? And he begins to weep. Friends, Jesus understands what it's like to lose a close friend. Jesus understood what it was like to go through those difficult times. He understood what it was like to lose a loved one. You know, the idea here of wept is the only time used in the New Testament. And it literally means to shed tears. Jesus was shedding tears on this occasion because of a loss of a loved one. But as I was studying this from John chapter 11, I encourage you to turn there. I got to thinking, doesn't Jesus know that Lazarus is better off? Doesn't Jesus understand 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13 that, that those that die in the Lord, those that sleep in the Lord are, are in the hands of Jesus, that, that they're a whole lot better off than they are here? I think Jesus understood that. Go, go with me. Of course, John chapter 11 verse 35 is, is that account that we see Jesus weeping. But go to chapter number 12. Go to John chapter 12. Look at verses 9 and verse number 10 because I think this helps us understand more of the context of what's going on when Jesus is weeping here. John chapter 12. Look at verse number 9. Now many of the Jews knew that He was there and that they came not not for Jesus' sake only. Here they are coming after Jesus wanting to, to get after Him, wanting to, to persecute Him. But they didn't come for Jesus only. But they also might see who? Lazarus. Whom He was raised from the dead. Now look at verse 10. But the chief priests also plotted to put Lazarus to death. So not only were they coming after Jesus, our Savior, but here they are coming after Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead one chapter earlier. And I think part of the reason that Jesus here in John chapter 11 is shedding tears is because if He knew He raised Lazarus from the dead, that there was going to be persecution that was involved in Lazarus' life, there was going to be heartache in Lazarus' life, there was going to be turmoil because people were going to be after Him, because people were going to crucify Him because of this. And I think the reason, number one, Jesus shed tears, yes, because He lost a dear friend. But number two, he was shedding tears because he was going to have to bring him back and he was going to have to endure these heartaches. And Jesus didn't want that to happen to his friend because he was better off being there in paradise. But you go back to John chapter 11, look at the few verses before verse number 35 to help us see this even more, this idea that Jesus is shedding tears because he's going to have to bring back Lazarus and he's going to have to endure these trials. Verse 33 says, Therefore when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews came with her weeping. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled and says, Where do you lay him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. So here he is weeping over a loss of a dear friend, loss of one that he's going to have to bring back that's going to have to go through turmoil and trials in his life. But this wasn't the only time that Jesus shed tears. It's probably the most common incident incidents in the Bible that we see Jesus saying tears, but it wasn't the only one. Jesus also prayed for, or excuse me, Jesus also shed tears for his enemies. You know, there in Jesus' teachings, we see that we should pray for our enemies. But one thing that Jesus did was not only pray for his enemies, but he shed tears over his enemies. Go with me to Luke chapter number 19. Luke 19, and look at verse number 41. It actually can probably begin in verse number 40. He says, But he answered and said to them, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. This idea of crying out. Now look at verse 41. Now as he draw near, he saw the city. 
So I want you to imagine this. Jesus, of course, is getting to the end of his life here on earth. He is going towards what city? The city of Jerusalem. And he knows exactly what's going to be happening there in the city of Jerusalem. Because if you go back to Matthew 14, what's happening in Matthew 14? He prepares his disciples for him to be crucified. And as he is walking towards the city, he can see the city up ahead. He can see the, the future of the things that's going to happen. What does he do? And wept over it. He wept for the people that were in that city. And he was going to have to shed, he, and he shed tears for the people in that city. The idea of weeping here is not the same word that's used in John 11 verse 35. The idea, the literal translation is this, a loud Welling. Here Jesus is letting out a loud well for that city that is full of sin and that was going to kill the Son of God. Friend, Jesus prayed for those that was against Him. Those that was against God's will. And He prayed for them, but He shed tears over them as well. So number one, we see Jesus shed tears for His friends. Number two, He shed tears for His foes. But number three, Jesus shed tears for Himself. For himself. You look at Hebrews chapter 5, we see this occasion of Jesus shedding tears. Hebrews 5 and verse number 7, who in the days of this flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications, notice this phrase. Notice how he, he said these prayers. With vehement cries and tears. To him who was able to save to him from death and heard because of, the, of his godly fear. The idea here uh, of the vehement cries and tears, the literal translation is strong. Outcries of desires. Here Jesus is wanting something so bad that He is shedding tears for Himself. And that is because of His death on the cross. Here we see Jesus understands sadness. Jesus understands death. Jesus understands heartache. You know, many times people would say, well... True men don't cry. You know, there's no crying in baseball is the old saying, right? But friends, Jesus cried. And God, and Jesus, the Son of Man, was the man of all men. If it's okay for Jesus to cry, men, it's okay for us to cry as well. And we need to learn that from this lesson. But Jesus was also happy. I'm going to go over these very quickly because of time's sake. But Jesus was happy, number one, for saving people. You you read the, the account of the teachings of Jesus, the parables of Jesus about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. But what do you see in every single instance? He was happy once that soul was found. He was happy. I think the word actually is joy. And what does joy mean? Happiness. He was happy every time those people were saved. Jesus was happy not only for the people being saved, but His victory over Satan. He was happy because of that victory over Satan. You know, Satan thought he had won there when sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3. But what's the prophecy that we can see there? The head of Satan being crushed, being literally stepped upon, and the heel of, heel of Jesus being bruised. And what do we see? What's that, what's that about? That's about the cross of Jesus. And that brought much happiness to Jesus because salvation would come through that. And we can see that more in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 2. There when it's talking about us running our Christian race. And verse number 1 says, Therefore, we, since we also are surrounded by such a great cloud of the witnesses, let us lay, lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. And notice this, looking unto Jesus, 
who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy... I want you to circle that word joy there in Hebrews 12 and verse 2. For the joy that was set before Him, enduring the cross, despising the shame, He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, does that sound like joy to you? I mean, you, you read the last part of that verse. The cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you think that enjoy is enjoyed? No, but Jesus enjoyed it. Why? Because of the aftermath that would happen because of the cross. Jesus knew. He says, hey, don't let, you know, if this cup can pass through me, let it be, but let thy will be done. You know what that means? Hey, I understand why, why this needs to happen. I understand that it has to happen. And therefore, since it has to happen, there's going to be great joy that's going to come because of the events that's going to happen at the cross. That's why it brought Jesus much joy because salvation is now offered to all mankind. First, Tim, First Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 4. Jesus not only was sad or happy, but He also understood anger. You know, there in Matthew chapter 21 and also John chapter 2, what do we see Jesus doing? He's coming in and flipping those money tables. Why? Because He has made this house of prayer the den of thieves. Here they are taking the place in which was supposed to be worship. Here they are supposed to be taking the place that was holy and making it a den of thieves, making it a place of money tra- trading, making it a place not about God, but making a man, making those things. We could also look at how Jesus was very angry with the, with the hypocritic teachers of the day. You read Matthew chapter 23, beginning in about verse number 23, and you read the whole chapter, and all you see is, woe to you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, hypocrites, all these different people. And what were they doing? They were teaching things that were man's teaching, but they weren't following it themselves. They were hypocrites. They were two-faced. And Jesus became very upset and angry with them, and that's where you see Matthew chapter 23 coming into place. He becomes very angry with false teachers, Matthew 7 and verse 15. So we see Jesus can become angry. You might be thinking, you know, Austin, it's very hard for me to handle my temper. It's okay to get angry, but what's the problem when we sin? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 26 says, Be be angry and sin not. You know what that means? That means we can control our emotions. Jesus controlled His emotions, obviously, because He did not sin, Hebrews 4 and verse 15. Therefore, he, he understood what it was like to get angry, but not push it past its limits. It's okay to get angry, but we do not need to sin. We don't need to let our anger arise to other things. We don't need to let our anger uh, control our tongue, because many times when we get angry, what happens? We forget to put our tongue under subjection. I think that's why James chapter 3 says that the tongue's a hard thing to handle. It's a hard thing to tame. Because many times our anger leads us to saying things we ought not say. Maybe even doing things we ought not do. And that's why we need to be slow to speak and slow to wrath. We could look at other occasions. Mark chapter 3 and verse number 5 about Jesus talking to those on the Sabbath. And notice there you can see that He begins to get angry. But he turns his attention from that anger and shifts it to heal a young man. I think that's what we need to do. We need to shift our attention when we get angry and just turn away from it. Calm ourselves down. You know, I I teach students that have what we call EBD, emotional behavior disorder. And that's that's what they can't they can't they struggle to put their emotions under subjection. 
And we teach them techniques to turn their anger towards something else. That's what Jesus did there in Mark chapter 3. That's what we need to do. Another another, um, emotion that we see Jesus encountering is anxiousness. You know, there in Luke chapter 22, verse number 42, there there He is in the garden praying. And what begins to come from His brow? Sweat. Blood dripping from His forehead. And that is a a medical term that is known as hemohydrosis. There when somebody is in so much anxiety and so so much turmoil in their life that they literally begin to sweat drops of blood from their forehead. Jesus had no greater weight upon His shoulder than the sin of the world during that time. There He is in the garden praying. But this is the point I want you to know. Jesus understands anxiety. Friends, we, we, have, we have people out there today, and you might even struggle with this, that are very anxious, that are very, very worried, that, 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 that struggle with this, this, this term or this, this battle of anxiety. It's a, it's a true thing. And people struggle with it all the time. But how did Jesus handle his anxiety? He went away in the garden and he prayed to his Father. That was his prescription for anxiety. What is our prescription for anxiety? What does Philippians chapter 4, 6 through 7 say? Don't worry about anything, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's the same prescription we have. Jesus' prescription was to get away, go away, be by yourselves, pray to God, take take those worries, take those anxieties to the Father, cast all your cares upon Him, 1 Peter 5 and verse number 7 and 8. And we see Philippians 4, that's, that's our same prescription. Pray to God and turn over those requests to Him. I want us to end in this point, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 15. I alluded to it earlier. Many times when we look at Hebrews 4 and verse 15, we look at the idea that Jesus can be our Savior because He had no sin. But I want us to look at it a little bit different light today. Look at Hebrews 4 and verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Friends, one thing that I love about Jesus is that He understands what it's like to be tempted. He understands what it's like to be tempted because he was tempted by the devil himself, Matthew chapter 4. But he also understands our emotions. Jesus understands our emotions. He went through him, went through them himself, and he understands what it's like to go through those different emotions. We need to handle our emotions like Jesus handled his emotions. Emotions of the Savior, number one. But let's look at number two, the emotions of the sword. The emotions of the sword. And of course, the, the sword, spiritually speaking, is the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 17. Also, uh, Hebrews 4 and verse number 12. The, the, the Word of God is living, active, powerful. And it, what does it say? Sharper than any two-edged sword. Friends, this Bible is a sword because it separates. It penetrates the heart and the soul of mankind. But because it penetrates the heart of mankind, people are going to react differently to the hearing and the preaching of the gospel. Let's notice just a few of these. Go with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Here on the day of Pentecost, the first gospel sermon is preached. And here Peter is, and he, he doesn't shy away from the gospel. He, 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 he takes it on head on, tells them with wicked hand they had crucified the Son of God. He tells them what they need to do after they ask the question, what, what do I need to do? They, he tells them to repent, be baptized. 
But look at verse 41. Then those who, here's your emotion, gladly received the word and were baptized. And on that day, 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, I don't know exactly how many people were here on this day, but it was more than 3,000. There were a whole lot more than 3,000. Hundreds of thousands of people were here because it was Pentecost. And they were gathered together. But I know this. There were 3,000 that received it gladly and did exactly what the Bible says. I guarantee you that there were people that walked away mad by the preaching of the gospel that day. I guarantee you there's people that walked away sad by the preaching of the gospel that day. I guarantee you there's people that mocked because of the preaching of the gospel that day because there were people involved and they all reacted differently. But they received the word with gladness. A few weeks ago I preached on the Ethiopian eunuch there in Acts chapter 8. And what is it, how does he react to the gospel? He says, see here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? He says, if you believe you may. Then him and the eunuch, Philip and the eunuch went down in the water and they baptized him. Then look at verse number 39. So now when the when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way, what? Rejoicing. Friends, there's no greater feeling in the world when you baptize somebody into Christ and they come up out of that watery grave of baptism. Rejoicing. Friends, that's the best feeling in the world because they understand their soul is saved, that their sins are washed away and they can be a part of that New Testament church which Jesus Established. Go with me a few more chapters in the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Look at verse number 32. Here, of course, is the sermon on Mars Hill. Paul preaching this sermon, and he is talking to those who had this inscription to the unknown God whom they ignorantly worship. So here's that context that's going on. But look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, but most likely is preaching to some of the Sadducees because you see they were sad. Because of they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in an afterlife. Some mocked while others said, we will hear you on this matter. Friends, some people are going to mock us because of things that we believe. People are going to ridicule us. People are going to make fun of us because of what we believe, because of what we teach, because of what we practice. People might make fun of us because we don't use mechanical instruments and music. People might make fun of us because we believe baptism is the, only, is the means of salvation that washes away our sins. People may mock us because we believe that life begins at conception. Because it does. Jeremiah 1, in verse number 5. And we shouldn't apologize for it. We need to have the boldness to stand up for what is right and continue to preach God's Word. But some people are going to be mad when we preach the Gospel. You know, I remember that there are some that hear the Gospel preached and they are so mad. They're not mad. They're mad at themselves and they're mad at those that have taught them for many years. Because they haven't taught them the truth of God's Word. And that, that drives them to obey the Gospel because of that. Some people just walk away mad because they, they've been wrong for so many years and they'd rather follow the ways of their fathers than do what the Bible says to do. Some people, some people might be mad, but some people might be sad. There in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse number 22, we see the account of the rich young ruler. And he comes up to Jesus and he asks the best question that he could ever ask. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He says, sell all that you have. Or he says, just keep the commandments. He says, keep the commandments and you will get... He says, well, I, I kept all the commandments. Which, which, which one? He says, sell all that you have and follow me. And what did that young, rich ruler do that day? He went away sorrowful. He went away sad because he knew he could not do that. 
Friends, some people are going to react to the preaching of the gospel, and they're going to be sad. They're going to be sad because they understand their soul is not right with God. They're going to realize that they need to make some changes in their life. They're going to realize, hey, I'm not right with God. They're going to be sad. And sometimes those tears lead them to be obedient to the gospel, but sometimes they walk away, just like this man. He walked away. And they'd rather stay in the way that they have done instead of turning. So number one, we see the emotions of the Savior. Number two, we see the emotions of the sword, that is the Bible, in which we had more time to develop those, but time does not permit us to. But lastly and thirdly, let's look at the emotions of separation. When I talk about this word separation, I'm not talking about uh, me leaving you today. I'm talking about biblical separation. You know, when I talk about separation, I'm talking about death. Death is a separation. It is a separation of the body and the soul. The soul returning to God, the body staying here on earth. That is a separation. Because there's going to be a day in which there is the second death, the second separation. That is the soul from God into everlasting punishment. And that is the second death. There's a day of separation. You know, there's a song that we many times sing, there's a great day coming. There's a great day coming. But what's one of those verses of that song say? There's a sad day coming. There's a sad day coming. And that's the truth. There in Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 4, also Revelation 7 and verse number 17, says what? There's going to be tears on that day of separation. But I'm thankful that God will wipe away every tear. It's going to be a sad day because of those that have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's going to be loved ones be separated because of this. There's going to be friends separated because of this. And it's going to be a sad, sad, sad day. But it's also going to be a day of rejoicing. It's going to be a day of happiness. There in Matthew chapter 25 and verse number 23, what does Jesus say? Enter into the joys, to the happiness of thy Lord. He talks about you've got to be faithful in order to receive that. You know, there in John chapter 14, it says, Don't be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. For my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. And friends, I can't wait for that day. It's going to be a happy day for us to be able to receive our crown and to receive our mansion. And that's going to be such a happy day. But it's also going to be a sad day because it's a day of separation. Because everybody's not going to make it to heaven. But another emotion on that day is it's going to be a day of shock. A day of shock. There's going to be some people that stand there on the judgment seat of Christ. And they are going to be shocked. Who's going to be shocked on that day? Atheists. You know on the day of judgment there's not going to be one atheist stand there in line. Because they're all going to be there standing before God, seeing Him with their own eyes. They're going to be shocked. Jews are going to be shocked that Jesus was the Messiah. Muslims are going to be shocked that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, that no man can come to Him except through Him. And many other religious groups are going to be shocked because of this. But also believers, and I use that word believers in quotation. Believers are going to be shocked. Because there in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse number 21, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father in heaven. And then look at verse 22. 
Many will say in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works. What does he say? I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that practice lawlessness. Those people are going to be shocked. They thought they were right with God. They thought they had done everything they needed to do to go to heaven, but they were shocked. Friends, there's no reason to be shocked on that day because Jesus has given us His Word in terms of salvation for us to follow after. Friends, Jesus understands our emotions. People are going to react differently to the preaching of the gospel. And there's going to be a day of separation in which there are going to be a lot of different emotions on that day. But friends, I want us to understand we can be happy and we can have assurance of our salvation, 1 John chapter 5. Have you done what Jesus has said to do? Have you done what God has told us to do through His Word? God has told us that we must believe in Him. If we don't believe in Him, we, we will die in our sins. We must be willing to repent of our sins, that is, to turn away from it. There in Acts 17, verse number 30, there's a time that God overlooked it, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. We must be willing to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, just like the Ethiopian eunuch did. And we must do what the Ethiopian eunuch did after he confessed Jesus. He went down in the water, and he was baptized. For the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2 and verse 38, Acts 22, 16, to be one in Christ, Galatians 3 and verse number 27. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't done that. Friends, don't put it off because we never know when the Lord will come back and you can go on your way rejoicing this morning. But maybe you're here and you have seen your life or maybe you just need the prayers of the church. We'll be glad to pray with you and for you. James 5 and verse number 19 tells us that we can pray with you and pray for you and your sins will be forgiven. If we can help you anyway, come now as we stand and as we sing.